What's that? Yeah, prayer gathering tonight. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, we will have prayer gathering tonight at 6.30 for anybody that can come. All right. Hebrews chapter 4 today. Hebrews chapter 4. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and your word today. Um, it exposes us. It convicts us. It tells us what truths we are to hold, the things that we are to love, the things that we are to reject. And I pray, God, that today you would have our full attention in this place as we open up and read your word and see what a Savior we have. Speak to our hearts and lead us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to be reading Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What happens in Buffalo when the weather forecasters tell us that a pile of lake effect snow is about to come our way? What happens? What do people do? They do, don't they? Everybody knows, because we all do it too, right? When you hear that the snow's about to drop, everybody descends upon the grocery store and makes a run, on the very least, milk and eggs and bread. As if, I mean, as if that's all we ever eat. But uh, I, a couple weeks ago when that happened, I did go back to the grocery store um, a few times, even just immediately after that, and there was no bread. Like, <laughs> I guess, you know, everybody's stocked up on it. There was no bread. And a couple of places I went to, they didn't have any eggs either. Uh, but we saw this take place a couple of weeks ago. Everybody went to the grocery stores. Uh, or they went to Home Depot and bought themselves a new snowblower. Uh, you couldn't find a snow shovel anywhere for about three days. They were gone. Uh, because people believed that the snowstorm was coming. And at least this time, they rightly believed in it. And because we believed that, we prepared. Prepared for the snow to drop. And so you will, whatever you believe to be true, it will naturally impact the way that you live. So the things that you believe shape the way that you live. And it would be a strange thing if that was not the case. So if you really believe that you were going to die tomorrow, if you thought that was really true, it would be a very odd thing for you to schedule a vacation getaway for the following month right? That'd be peculiar. You know, you think you're going to die, and next thing you know, you're scheduling a vacation. And so what you believe to be true shapes the way that you are going to live. Now, there are some truths that don't make any difference in life, kind of like the sky is blue. I, I really doubt in some way that that has ever shaped the way that you are going to live. It's true, but it's not a life-shaping truth. But if you believe that God became a man, 
for the purpose of saving sinners, and you believe that you are one of those sinners that he died for, those truths are going to do something to you. They're going to demand something from you. The way that you think about sin, the way that you think about God, and if you believe that you not only belong to Jesus, but you have his spirit inside of you, that adds a whole other layer to this. You have new desires, a new power to live in accord with those desires, and that's what a new life looks like. And I say all this about the truths that we hold and the connection that it has the way that we live because it seems to me that that is the pattern that's in front of us today in our scripture passage. Two truths and two applications that come directly from those truths. Meaning if you hold this thing to be true, you will then live like this. This truth will shape the way you live. And so the clear, the clear question for us as we look at this passage is, do we believe the truths that are here? So when I, when I read these and talk about these, ask yourself the question, do I believe this? Do you affirm these? Because if you do believe them to be true, you should then see these applications being lived out in your life. And if you do not see them happening, could it be that there is a more important truth that is shaping the way that you live? Or could it be that instead of truth that's guiding you, it's your feelings? The gospel sets the primary pattern of, of the way that we live by its truth. It is the prevailing truth in a Christian's life. So there are two truths that are clearly set forth in this passage, and we'll take them one at a time. Truth number one. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We see that in verse 14. Since, he says... Since then, we have a great high priest, meaning since we believe this to be the truth. Truth number one, we have a great high priest. He's no ordinary high priest. We're told that Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest. The people that this letter was written to, they would have understood what an ordinary high priest looked like. And the things that he did. Once a year, the human ordinary high priest, the Jewish high priest, would go through the curtain that was inside the tabernacle or in the temple, bringing blood with him to the other side, and he would pour that blood out on the top of the Ark of the Covenant known as the mercy seat. And there God had promised that when that was done, that the sins of the people would be forgiven. So he passed through the curtain that one day a year, bringing forgiveness for God's people. But Jesus, we are being told, he has passed through something else. He has passed through the curtain and gone to the other side which is in heaven. 
to the true tabernacle, the true temple where the presence of God resides. That's what we are being told here. So just like those ordinary priests pass through a kind of curtain, Jesus has as well. And he has offered once for all time blood that brings final forgiveness for our sins. He doesn't have to do it again and again and again. So he's passed through the curtain, the spiritual curtain, that brings us complete forgiveness and peace with God. So we're being told something about this high priest, this great high priest, who lives continually in the presence of God, sharing his rest with us. He's, he's gone into heaven where that final rest is. He is our rest there on the other side. He's telling us that there is an assurance that what he has there with him belongs to me and belongs to you. And where he is, he's telling us that someday we will be there with him forever. So we have been promised a great inheritance, and all of it is there in heaven with our Savior. So the question for me and you is, do we believe this? Do you believe this? Do these words strike a chord with your heart. And so when you hear of the rest and the peace and the hope that is on the other side of the heavenly curtains with Jesus, does that give you joy? Do you hold on to that? Do you believe that all of that is laid up there for you? And does that give you strength for the journey that is still ahead? And there may be just a little bit of a journey left for some who are in this room. There may be a very long journey still ahead for others. And does this truth prod you forward to keep going? Because that's what truth is supposed to do. The things that you really believe, they press you onward. You hold on to them. You do not let them go. Why? Because they're true. And we're people of the truth. And we don't relinquish it. We don't trade it in. We're here as the pilgrims, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and, and faithful when they got to Vanity Fair. And they're trying to sell them all this junk, the junk of the world. And what did they say? They say, all we want is truth. We buy truth is what they said. And that's what God's people are here to do. We don't trade it in for anything else. We buy truth. So we hold on to it. And so if Jesus really is the eternal Son of God, He is your high priest. And if He has accomplished everything necessary for your salvation, and if He has passed through the heavens as we're being told here, and if you belong to Him and He promises to give you everything that you need on your journey, if all of this is true, why would you ever live as though it is not? The right response to these beautiful truths is to do what we're told there at the end of verse 14, to hold fast to your confession. So since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Since we believe this, what? 
Let us hold fast, cling to our confession. And before I say anything else, I think it needs to be clear what our confession is, what we say we believe, what we are holding on to. And up to this point, the author of Hebrews has told us something like this. He gives us a piece of the truth and expounds on it, another piece of the truth and expounds on it. He keeps building on the truth that he began with. Something like this is what he has told us, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the eternal Son of God who came into the world to save mankind. And so he became a man himself. We're told there in chapter 2 that he made himself lower than the angels for a time so that he might suffer for us and taste death for us. So he suffered humbly for the sins of men. He ascended into heaven. He was exalted to his throne in heaven. And as the perfect man, what did he do? What did he accomplish for us? He defeated sin, death, and the devil there at the cross, as Angel mentioned, mentioned shortly ago. And because he has done that, he assures us that he will be with us here. While we are on earth, we are not alone. He's acting as our priest, giving us help to stay faithful to the end. That is a summary of what he has told us this far. So brothers and sisters, do you believe that to be true? Do you hold that? And not only do you hold on to that, does it shape the way that you live? It's the foundational truth that supports every other truth that you hold on to. Remember when Jesus was given the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end of it, he talked about a house that was built on a good foundation, and the foundation was himself. So your house, your life is built upon a foundational truth. And that foundational truth is all that Jesus is and all that he says that he has done. But what happened to the house that was not built upon him? It's built upon some other truth, right? He says that when the storm comes, that house will not stand. But the one that is built upon him does. And so it matters that there in your life is a foundational truth that is at the bottom of everything else that you believe. It shapes the way that you live. So I do think it's possible that there can be people who they believe something about Jesus. Maybe they come to church, they read things like this, hear things like this, and that's just kind of mixed into the other truths. It's just kind of all there swirling around together which does create a kind of inconsistent life, an inconsistent life. It's just being shaped by whatever is thought, believed, felt at the moment. And when the storms of life come, that house can fall. We want to be a people who believe this to be the primary truth in our lives so that when the storms come, our house doesn't fold like a deck of cards. So when I say what we believe to be true shapes the way we live, that's what I'm getting at. And I'm asking you, is all of what we just talked about and this confession, is that the primary truth in your life? Is that the main thing to you? 
Or is it just kind of in a casserole of truths, baked all together? And so sometimes you live like it, and maybe sometimes you don't. Because failing to hold on to this good confession does mean that there has been a breakdown somewhere in belief. It means that there has been a competing truth claim somewhere that has supplanted King Jesus as the most treasured truth in your life. You might say, well, what does that look like? What other truths might people believe? Maybe something like this. There's more pleasure to be had in the things of the world than in the things of Christ. So that, if you believe that to be true, what will happen? You will naturally begin to live more like people who live for the pleasures of the world. Those things will be first. They will be the priorities in your life. They will be ordered ahead of Christ-like things. It will shape the way that you live. There's all sorts of lies that are out there in the world that shapes the way people go about their business. People who believe, I'm a victim. People who believe, I'm always offended. People who believe that everybody has their own truth and nobody can tell me what to do. And if you believe like that, if that's what's down there deep down at the bottom of your soul, it will shape the way you live your life, the way that you talk to people. The way that you spend your time, the way that you spend your money, all of that will be shaped by what you believe. But if Jesus is on the throne, and if he is foundational to all you believe, your life will show it. People will know who you belong to. Your priorities will look like Christ's priorities. It will show that he has first place in your heart. And so I ask you again, do you believe it to be true that you have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, whose name is Jesus, and that he is the Son of God? Is your treasure laid up there with him? Is he your treasure on the other side of the curtain? Because if he is, you will hold fast to your confession and you will never let it go and you will not trade it for some other weak imposter that comes along making opposing truth claims to him and wooing your heart away from your Savior. And if you know right now that you do not live or you have not been living with this good confession, that you're living for something else, the right word to you this morning is to repent. Repent. Right there where you sit right now, repent. And give King Jesus his rightful place as the most important truth in your life. And allow him, not anything else, allow him to shape the way that you live. That's truth claim number one that we're told here. Truth number two. Truth number two. We're told in the following verses that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who has been tempted to the fullest extent as a man without sin. That's truth number two. 
Jesus, the Son of God, right now is in heaven. He sees his people in this room. He sees exactly what we are doing. He sees exactly what's going on inside of our hearts. And he is faithfully serving you as your high priest. And because he came to live as a man and he's felt the full brunt of temptation, he is also then able to sympathize with you and me in all of our struggles, in all of our difficulties, whatever temptation we may find ourselves in, he is able. He is able to sympathize and help in our time of need. He offers us infinite help. He always gives the right prescription for our present circumstances. He never makes a mistake. Jesus never messes it up. He never misdiagnoses the problem. He never looks at your heart and just doesn't know what to do like we do, right? Or like former high priests used to do, not Jesus. No, he always does what is right. Other high priests, they have failed to handle sinners rightly. They failed to handle them wisely and gently. Other high priests have sinned and need a priest for themselves. But our high priest, he is perfect in all that he does. And he is ready and able to give you mercy and grace to help in a time of need. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus do that for you? Because he has to? No, it's because he is filled with love for you. Even where he sits right now in heaven. He doesn't just have to. He delights to. We can't miss this part of it. I almost did when I was preparing this. Often I miss love for just cold truth. But we can't hear. Here in this passage, we're being shown the heart of Christ toward sinners. We're being shown the heart of Christ toward us. Jesus is not cold or callous. He's not just there doing his duty, punching the time clock like we do, right? He's not just doing his job, good day's work. No. Jesus' heart truly does go out in compassion to those who are needy. And because he has been tempted, it only increases his ability to give help. The help that his heart desires. So because of what he came and suffered, because he suffered to the fullest extent as a man is able when he came. Because he has been tempted like that, he is able to sympathize all the way down to the very bottom of anybody who has suffered. It has made him, prepared him to be the kind of priest that he is by becoming a man like you and me. And his heart is sympathetic, it is compassionate, it is loving, it is caring, it is merciful. He looks down here right now, he sees you. 
He sees Quentin. He sees Christina. He sees Ellie Dillingham back there. He sees your heart. He sees all of your struggles, all the things that are on your mind. And Jesus is not the type of man, the God man, who's just going to give you the cold shoulder. He's not the kind of person when you tell him your problems, he just kind of shrugs them off. Gosh, that doesn't really matter. Why are they telling me this? No. He has the right kind of feeling, the right kind of thoughts, the right kind of compassion for you and everything that you are dealing with. And so this passage here is not just telling us the cold truth that Jesus is a good high priest and he's up there doing his duty. Well, thank you, Jesus. And we are thankful, right? Even if that's all he would do for us, we should be thankful. But he is so much more than that. He has a heart, a heart that is filled for you, Dave Waro. He loves you. He sees you in your sin. He sees you in your temptation. He sees you in your confusion and the things that you don't know what to do right now. He sees all of that. And he is a great high priest who loves you. Thomas Goodwin, old Puritan, he says this about these verses. He wrote a book. <laughs> he wrote a book about these verses right here, a whole book. This is what he says and why he wants to write about it. He says, this text takes our hands and lays them upon Christ's breast and lets us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn toward us. Even now he is in glory. The very scope of these words are given to encourage believers against all that may discourage them from the consideration of Christ's heart toward them now in heaven. All. I think that's an important word there. Against all that may discourage them. It tells us where we are to go and what Jesus is like when we turn toward him. So whatever it is right now that you come into this room today burdened by, do not think it too small for Jesus. And do not think that he does not care about what you are thinking on and burdened by and hurt by and struggling with and don't know how to deal with. He is your great high priest and his heart is filled with love toward His love is not diminished in any way. Neither is his power. That's another thing. It's one thing for somebody to have a heart that wants to, right? It's one thing to have a heart that wants to. I've talked to some of, some of you all here before who have children that are hurting, various life circumstances, and you want to help them, but you can't. You're just not able. You're not able to take away their pain. You're not able to take away their suffering. You're not able. Your heart goes out because you love them. But Jesus is able. And so not only does he have the heart that delights to help, wants to help, yearns to help. He has the ability to actually give that help. 
That's what we're being told here. That when his people come to him, to his throne of grace, he does help. He gives mercy and grace to help, help in a time of need. Isn't that wonderful? So he's like, I mean, if you've got children, if you've got grandchildren, you've got people that you love, that's what Jesus' heart is like. You will do anything. You will do anything to help them, won't you? <laughs> How much more is the heart of Christ toward those that he loves? If your sin-weakened heart loves like that, what do you think his sinless heart is like? It's not mixed or confused. It's not struggling to know what's right to do. No, he feels rightly and he always does rightly. Like the perfect parent. That's what Jesus is like. He has a purer love than even a parent does, but the ability to always give the needed help. That is the truth. That's the truth that is here. And if we believe that truth, if we're holding on to that truth right now, how will it then shape the way that we live, what we will do? Belief shapes living. Do you believe that? Yes. Therefore, what will happen? Verse 16. That's what will happen. It tells us that we will confidently draw near. I mean, really, if you think that you have a high priest like that and you've come in here today with burdens and you hear he's like that toward you and he is always ready to help and he's always filled with love, what will you do? You will immediately run to him with confidence that he will take care of you. Will you not? Man, it would be so strange if you didn't. We confidently draw near through this high priest to the throne where all of that grace exists. Grace that is available for sinners like us. And so if we believe his heart is filled with love, we will run to him. Not the other way. Not packing up all our stuff and just going home. No, we will go to him. That's what we're being encouraged to do here. We're told something I think is pretty interesting here. We're being told to draw near to the throne of grace. We've just been told that he's a high priest. Why the throne? He, couldn't he have used like some other furniture more appropriate for a priest? Why a throne of grace? Is he mixing his metaphors a bit here? What's underneath this thought? And I had to look at that a bit. And what I found is that the tabernacle or the temple, that imagery I talked about a little while ago where the priest passes through the curtain, that Jesus is passed on the other side of the heavenly curtain, that type of thought is still here in the author's mind when he says the throne of grace. Listen to how one commentator puts it when talking about the throne. He says, the throne of grace is the place of God's presence from which grace is given to his people. His throne is in heaven. And the sanctuary was the place where he or his name dwelt on earth. Again, tabernacle, temple. 
is where it was, all right? And if you remember later on, actually, in this book, we will be told that the real tabernacle is in heaven and that Moses was shown an image or a picture of the heavenly tabernacle when he was told how to build the earthly one. So it was laid out according to something that he saw about heaven. That's what we're being told here. The sanctuary was the place where God or his name dwelt on earth. God was said to be enthroned on the cherubim who were placed on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle and later in the temple. So there in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant was. The cherubim were on top of that. That was in there. The earthly counterpart of the heavenly throne is the mercy seat. The source of God's gracious assistance. In Old Testament times, worshipers could, could approach the outer limits of the sanctuary. An ordinary priest could approach the altar, but only the high priest could approach the mercy seat that's there on the other side of the curtain. Christ's high priestly ministry has achieved for believers what Israel never enjoyed, namely immediate access to God and freedom to draw near to him continually. Are you hearing that, what he's saying? He is saying that in the Old Testament, only the high priest was able to go into the most holy place and offer the blood on the mercy seat, which was the throne of God. And now our high priest has passed through the curtain and he has gone into the holy of holies and he has offered up his own blood there in the presence of God, providing grace and forgiveness for God's people. He has torn down all the barriers that were there in the Old Testament where the people could not go in. They couldn't go into the holy place where even just the ordinary priests went, and they could not go into the most holy place where only the high priest has gone. But when Jesus went into heaven and offered up his blood, he tore down all of those boundaries. And now we, common people that we are, called holy, are now able to walk boldly into the Holy of Holies where that throne is, where the mercy seat is, where King Jesus is, and confidently ask for mercy and grace in a time of need. That is wonderful. Wonderful news. And he says to us, He's not telling us to stay out there on the edges. He's not saying, keep your distance. He is saying, come. Come in. Come to me and get what you need. I am ready to give it. Gosh, this is beautiful. And all that there in the Old Testament, that that was meant to portray how there is a distinction between what was holy and common and just the common sinner could not enter into that most holy place to where that throne was. But now we're being told we can. Why? Because we've been cleansed. Because we've been cleansed by his blood. Because we've now been called holy ourselves. And have access to heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is good stuff. And so when we believe this to be true... What will we do? We will confidently go. 
So brothers and sisters, again, do you believe all this? Do you believe that you have a high priest that is there in that wonderful place of grace? And that curtain, you know what happened to it? It got torn and taken down. There's no barrier between people and God. Ripped down. We have access to the Holy of Holies where Jesus Christ, where our great God is. Holy God, he says, come to me. If we believe that, we'll go. Every time, every time you're tempted, every time you find yourself in sin, every time you're confused, you don't know what to do. Life is hard for us, isn't it? All sorts of challenges coming our way that we don't know what to do that's right. We're tempted to sin. We're tempted to wander, to drift from the path. And if you believe that Jesus is this high priest for you, you will go to him. And he will gladly, graciously, loving, give you grace and mercy. Before we go, I just want to deal with a couple of specific kinds of people who might be reluctant to draw near to him. So if we say we believe this to be true, we'll go. But I'd like to address potential people who are here who might not want to confidently draw near to Christ and wonder out loud why. Three different types of people. The first is the one who does not believe any of this or is struggling to believe it. And so all that I've said so far, it seems so distant to you, so strange, maybe unlikely. But my question for you, if that's who you are this morning, that you aren't wanting to draw near to this Savior because you just don't see the truth in it. Could it be that what I'm saying is true and that your heart is just hardened toward it? Or maybe you're convinced or, that your life is going to have to change if all this is true, and you're concerned about that. And all I can say to you, I think, is that Jesus will not disappoint you. He will not disappoint you. So you've got concerns. You think, oh, I'm going to have to give this or that up, and I really love that. I'm just telling you that whatever Jesus is going to give you is going to be far better. And I'm not saying that your life is going to improve or all of your circumstances is going to improve. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Your circumstances may not improve. But whatever he gives to you, grace, mercy, his spirit, it is far better than what you are concerned about losing. He is not going to disappoint. Secondly, what other type of person might struggle to draw near to a savior like this? It's the one who sees his sin as larger than Christ. The sin is just too great. My sin is too large. I talked to a man this week who I think thinks like this. And I was talking to him about Jesus and he just kind of said, well, you know I've been to war. And I understood what he meant. And it's almost as if, you know, Jesus, does he forgive stuff like that? 
Yes, he does. So this kind of person, they deal with a lot of guilt, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. And I would guess that this person is probably more sensitive than others, more aware of their sins. And somehow in the middle of all that, that's, those sins start to become so large and Jesus starts to become too small and your heart begins to fail. You get weak, you get tired, you get run down and you just think, ah, you're overwhelmed by it. And I simply want to reiterate to you what this passage tells us about him, that Jesus is a great sufferer. He was a great sufferer and that enabled him to be a great priest for fellow sufferers. There is no sin, there is no struggle, there is no temptation too large for him to overcome. None. I don't care what yours was. And sometimes we think about those people in the world, do we not, that have done terrible things. We read it every day on the news. You just, you just don't want to see it anymore. I read something yesterday, I, just, I didn't want to see it. Gosh. We want judgment to fall on those people, don't we? But their sin is not too great. They bring those sins to the Lord. Forgiveness is to be had because he is a great Savior. And peace with God is offered to them because his blood is enough to wash them clean. And he will not reject them if they come. In a couple of chapters, this same writer will tell us that he is able to save to the uttermost, all the way, the uttermost, for those who draw near to God through him, since he, is, he always lives to make intercession for them. There's no sin that's too large for Jesus. Lastly, the third kind of person who's going to hesitate to draw near is the one who does not see his sin enough. His sin seems too small. So he doesn't really think that he needs a high priest like this because he's kind of okay. So that's the other end of the spectrum in a way from this last person. So that last person sees sin in everything and it seems too great for him. But this one doesn't really see sin anywhere in his heart. So he doesn't draw near. And he may only think of sins as being like those big ones, like the Pharisees thought of them. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing. I'm not murdering. You're not going to see my name out there on the news for any of that. Therefore, I must be stronger than all of those other people or more holy or more mature. And more likely, they're just blind. I need the Lord to give them eyes to see. Because Jesus taught that anger was the seed of murder, lust was the seed of adultery, and you don't have to rob a bank in order to be a thief. We are naturally selfish. We're naturally manipulative. We only give love to those who will love us in return or those that we think have properly earned it often. And so only those people who see themselves as truly needy will draw near to this throne with confidence. Do any of those ring a bell to you? I'm not talking about your neighbor. I'm not talking about your spouse. I'm not talking about your children. I'm asking you. You are a great sinner 
And we're being told here that Jesus is a great Savior and a great high priest. And what you believe will shape the way that you live. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for truth. There is objective truth out there. Truth that can't be explained away, wiped away, done away with. It must be dealt with. And we are being told truth here, truth that is supposed to shape the way that a Christian lives. And I pray that every person in this room will have their hearts delighted to have a high priest in heaven like this, who loves us, who will never fail us, always has the power and the desire to do what is right for us. And we are told to draw near to him with confidence, and he will give. May we do it, Lord, faithfully, confidently, coming to his throne. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus.